I'm Kerry Hayes, the Deputy Chief of Staff at the City of Chattanooga, and you're listening to The Scanner, a podcast from Mayor Andy Burke's Council Against Hate and the American Diversity Report. The Scanner includes conversations about journalism, extremism, and what's happening in America. Today, our guest is Ryan Broderick, a senior reporter at BuzzFeed News, who's done some remarkable reporting about how technology keeps accelerating the spread of radicalism, as well as how tech companies and regulators have tried, mostly in vain, to mitigate these effects. I think the way that Ryan approaches these issues is really interesting and insightful, and he's doing a great job keeping up with an industry that is evolving really, really fast right now. I'm grateful he was able to take some time to talk to us. Ryan Broderick from BuzzFeed News, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. Good morning. You've been covering this intersection of technology and globalism and public policy for a long time, both in the U.S. and in Europe, and you've been a senior reporter for BuzzFeed News uh, since the start of the year covering these issues. How did you come to this beat? Um, By accident. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Seven years ago, I started at BuzzFeed as a community moderator. So my job was to read comments in the BuzzFeed comment section all day and ban bad users and things like that. And I had gone to school for journalism, and I was always interested in tech just simply because it's, you know, it's just sort of all there is now nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when BuzzFeed was starting its news operation, they were starting a breaking news team. I jumped on board with that, and I kept following what I had learned as a community moderator, which is that the Internet sort of dictated by communities. And as we're now seeing moderation is literally a policy decision. Um, And then when I moved overseas four years ago, I was covering breaking news around the world. And I realized really quickly that no one seemed to be asking about tech or web culture during international news crisis. So I started saying, you know, what apps are you using or looking at memes or trying to figure out what kind of viral content was being shared uh, you know, during terror attacks or protests or, you know, what have you. And as the far-right populism movement started to spread around 2015, I happened to be in the right place at the right time with a bunch of background already on how a lot of countries use the Internet. And I followed it basically for three years. And now I'm back in America getting ready for the um, maelstrom, I suppose you could call it, of 2020. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> so in, in October of last year, uh, you published a long essay for BuzzFeed that was called This is How We Radicalize the World. It was just this wonderfully reported, super detailed uh, uh, coverage of a number of situations that were happening, seemingly happening almost simultaneously all over the world, where you had this intersection of populism and nationalism and social media that were producing political outcomes that were apparently just deeply anti-democratic. Things were happening in Italy, in Poland, in Brazil, in the United Kingdom, in Myanmar, in the U.S. Um, I just wanted to hear you comment on that phenomenon a little bit and see what your thoughts were about why we seem to be seeing these kind of situations replicate themselves everywhere. Absolutely. I think I want to be clear first and say that, you know, the Internet didn't invent fascism and it definitely didn't invent populism. But when you start to look at the timeline and you start to look at the technology that's being used right now, it's one of these weird things where it's, you know, both connected and it's not. And I, I think we can learn more from how other countries are going through this. 
um, than we are right now. I think America has, I would say, a pathological need to believe that they're special. And if you look at the rest of the world right now, we're not, in fact. Um, Brexit predates Trump. Uh, Nahandra Modi's first election in India predates Trump, where he was, you know, the most liked politician on Facebook. And now we're seeing him literally take Hindu nationalism as a weapon to lock down, you know, the Kashmir region. I think we probably should have seen the wave as it was coming, but we didn't. And we're all sort of to blame for that. And I think tech companies are stuck in a tough position right now because if they admit that they are as powerful as I suspect they are on a social level, then they need to be regulated or broken up or what have you. But if they say we're actually not that powerful and, you know, most of our user base is inflated and this is all sort of ridiculous, well, then they lose their advertising stronghold, right? Yeah. So until the tech companies can decide what they want to be and how they see themselves, we're stuck at the whim of what they do. And I think even just this week, YouTube announced they're banning a couple far-right YouTubers. And, and they'll probably do this for the next several months. We'll, it'll eke out a little bit of news about, oh, this person's banned or that person's been blocked. But the core problems that you know created basically four years of political upheaval haven't really been addressed. And I don't know how we even start doing that. It, it, to me, it almost reminds me of the climate change argument because it, it, it is a global issue that we we can't really respond to on a national level yeah do you think though that the 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 upheaval that we're seeing in in so many political uh, economies i guess is that driving what the what the social media companies are doing or or vice versa where does that where does that chicken and egg sort of begin do you think my theory and this is a theory um is that when the political movements of say, the Arab Spring or Occupy Wall Street started happening at the beginning of the decade, they incentivized tech companies for engagement and time on site, right? Because during political protests, um, people were really active on your website. And that created a way of thinking about social media that has continued of a sense, this idea that you want a lot of people using your website at the same time. Because if you, um, you want a lot of people using your website at the same time because it's good for business and it's good for advertisers and it's good for venture capitalists who back you. But if you incentivize a lot of engagement and a lot of activity, well, that doesn't just go away. You know, it, it creates a lot of energy that you have to do something with. So it, it's almost like a meme where you, if you get enough people on Twitter, they will make a, a meme or a trend or a dance craze or a viral video or a protest movement. Um, it, it's uh, kinetic. You can't you can't stir the pot like that and expect people to just go. Oh well, you know, memes over. Time to go home. Um, it doesn't like human psychology. I don't think works that way. So as long as these companies keep incentivizing us to be hooked on their apps, our energy level has to go somewhere. And I think the easiest place to put it is into democracy, which then sort of hacks the very foundations of democracy. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is fascinating. Um, I, had, I hadn't really thought about political movements themselves as 
uh, meme <laughs> culture, but I guess that's, that is in a large way what we're seeing. And in that same essay from last year, last fall, you point out, and I'm sure that these numbers have grown even since this was published, but Facebook has 2 billion monthly active users. YouTube has 2 billion with a B monthly active users. Google and Facebook uh, have about 60% of all uh, digital advertising budgets in the U.S., you had mentioned the, the, the companies themselves, their uh, so far unwillingness to really confront um, their responsibility in this space. How, when you talk to them or when you have had chance to talk to them, what do they regard as their responsibility? How do they, you know, I mean, these are, these are literally, you know, larger than nation-sized enterprises at this point. What is, what is, how do they regard themselves? Oh, sure. I mean, my favorite thing to say to freak people out of conferences is they say, the only thing that has ever existed at the scale of Facebook in human history has been the Catholic Church. So, <laughs> um, you know, that's a lot of people. Um, in my conversations with uh, PR people for Facebook or Google, I always feel like they're taking a very defensive tone, almost like a, it's not our fault you used our gun sort of argument. Um, and, you know, I, I have lots of feelings about that argument. Um, mm -hmm. And I think they are, like, I think they are monofocused on one thing, which is, for Facebook, it's scale. They want every single person on Earth to use Facebook. That's kind of at their core and even with the, the most recent move to uh, incentivizing people to use messaging apps instead of a main feed, they still want you to use their messaging apps. And with Google, I think its main quest is to contain, you know, every bit of human knowledge that exists, and they won't really stop until they can. So as long as those are the two motivating forces behind these companies, I don't totally see them being able to course correct <laughs> because that's what drives them. Sure. Um, and I think it's reflected in every single update they do. Um, YouTube really can't moderate itself properly because it is completely and totally focused on having every bit of, you know, video that has ever existed on it. So as long as it wants that, it's sort of screwed. <laughs> sure. So when the business model is dependent on, you know, not just scale, but total scale, like maximal scale is, and, and that is obviously meant to, to, to capture uh, eyeballs that can convert to, to, to advertising dollars. And I, and I will say this with a clear caveat that uh, e the podcast that we are recording right now, I will <laughs> obviously post links on Facebook. I, I will use these very ecosystems to promote the discussion that we're having right now. So, so if that <laughs> makes us a little hypocritical, I, I, I want to acknowledge that. But is there is there any corrective that might come from advertisers? Is that a reasonable thought, or is that hopelessly naive? Uh, the way I think about it, and it's funny, I'm glad you brought that up, that this will inevitably go on the very platforms that we're moaning about right now. Um, the way I think about it is, I think, very simple, which is the concept of food deserts. I think this was in the piece from last year. I, I can't really remember, but, you know, you had this explosion of, innovation and food technology that contributed to things like KFC and McDonald's and Burger King. And for a brief moment, these were the height of food technology. You could get a hamburger super fast. Wow, that's amazing. And then they started to grow because they owned the best tech to make the best food. And then all of a sudden, 
there were no other places in the neighborhood other than McDonald's. And then suddenly people started getting really obese and they started getting sick and started getting heart disease because there was nowhere else to go except for McDonald's. I think we're in this moment exactly the same way, but with information. So we're stuck in like a fast food information ecosystem. And I would love to say that, you know, advertisers can help because once again, I think it's a very American idea where it's like, don't worry, capitalism fix, uh, capitalism causes problem, but capitalism can fix this problem. And that might be true, but I think the money is too good for advertisers to say, we're not going to use Facebook. Um, how, you know, we can't even not use Facebook for a podcast. Right. How could a massive digital marketing firm pass up a pipeline to every person on earth? The same way a politician uh, or a team like Cambridge Analytica can't pass up the idea to data mine or target because the temptation is just too high. So, yeah, it would be super great if uh, advertisers all boycotted it and these platforms instead started giving their advertising revenue to or advertising money to small newspapers or uh, local library walls or something. We went back in time. I don't know. Yeah. Billboards again, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I don't I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> right. I don't. Well, I want to pivot a little bit to something that you've been covering a lot uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, which are some of these smaller, um, I, I would say to, to most, uh, certainly listeners of this podcast, most people, more obscure platforms, um, 8chan, iFunny is one that you've been writing a lot about in the last couple of weeks. Um, just, I, I guess let's start with 8chan as, as briefly as you, as you can for, a, for an uninformed um, uh, consumer of news, can you describe what 8chan is and who uses it? Sure. So um, chances are most people by now probably have heard of 4chan. Um, and there's a website like this in every country. It's an anonymous message board where angry men go to hang out. You know, every country has their own version of 4chan. Um, but over the years, 4chan has started to actually crack down on things like harassment, uh, child pornography, um, it's tried to clean itself up a bit just so it doesn't get taken off the internet. Um, and in 2014, a bunch of 4chan users who were angry about the new rules on 4chan left, and they created 8chan. It was practically identical, um, but without any rules. It was a free-for-all. Um, and it, because it was a free-for-all, it very quickly turned into a hub for neo-Nazis, white nationalists, child pornography, and just general bad people. It was just sort of a bad, it was like, a, you know, the Star Wars cantina on crack. It was just, a, it was a mess. Um, and it, it very quickly started to spawn real life violence. Uh, men would drop a manifesto on 8chan and then go and hurt people. So the Christchurch shooter, um, he's sort of the, the platonic ideal, I suppose, of an 8chan user. Um, he, dropped his uh, manifesto onto the website, and then he live-streamed himself carrying out acts of horrific violence and attacking mosques in New Zealand, and he became a hero for HN users, and then very quickly other users started to um, copy him. And HN went down a couple weeks ago when finally all of the people and companies helping keep the website afloat said, this is too much, we're done, we're out. And it was taken off the offline by activists who um, basically just overloaded the website and went down. So for uh, white American men 
uh, of my age. I'm 29, so I'm sort of dead in the middle of the millennial zeitgeist here. Uh, we grew up using uh, message boards, uh, early social media, and I think there's a lot of reasons why millennial men should be upset. <laughs> you know, we're looking at maybe a second recession in my lifetime on, on its way. Um, things are not good for my generation. And it's really cheap to stay home and be angry on the internet. <laughs> it's a pretty cheap activity. So I understand fully why there are pockets of the internet that are just full of angry men. Um, the problem is that the angry men are left alone and they start to rot. And they sort of have a, a race to the bottom of who can be the most shocking and angry and violent. And eventually you get someone carrying out this sort of terror in real life. Um, I think there's a second thing happening, though, which is that we are now on the cusp of another generation coming of age. I think Gen Z will be turning 18 pretty soon, if they haven't already. And they've grown up in a world where the Internet has always existed. and from what I've been reading and the Gen Z kids I've been talking to, they find millennials very embarrassing. <laughs> they find us very earnest, very individualistic, very cringy uh, by how obsessed with the, uh, ourselves we are, which fair enough. <laughs> um, so for them, they, they, they call it LARPing, which stands for live action role playing. Um, and in a lot of these message boards and chat rooms, you'll see 15, 16 year old kids sort of ironically playing with their identity because They've been online for so long and for so much of their lives that they don't see an identity as a permanent fixture the way I think older people do. They sort of see it as a, a thing you can put on. You can become a neo-Nazi, and then you can become a hardcore communist, and then you can become um, uh, a different gender online or a different um, avatar or a different concept. Like you can, you can play with your identity that way. And they're really, I think they're a little naive because they get angry at me, especially when I sort of hold them to the coals about what they're putting on these chat rooms. And we just saw the FBI arrest several teenagers this, this month for LARPing, for role-playing the idea that they wanted to kill a bunch of FBI agents. <laughs> um, and the kids are all freaking out because they're like, what do you mean I can't just go online and write insane amounts of uh, fan fiction, basically, about how I want to kill police officers? Um, and, and I, I get why they're frustrated because they're children essentially, and they're angry and they have nothing else. They, you know, they don't really see, they don't see how it connects. They don't see that there's any sort of accountability or rules. And just you wait, when you're older, there'll be consequences, but the internet's out of control and the president's on Twitter talking crazy nonsense. And they don't, I don't think they see any adults in the room who are ready to hold them accountable. So I, I kind of can't blame them for being a little nihilistic about everything. So between reaching out to users to these sites, putting pressure on advertisers, or maybe asking for more government uh, regulatory intervention, what do you believe is the solution? What would make things better? I think there are some fundamental realities of digital media that we need to accept first. One is that um, people tend to congregate and then a community gets more and more popular and then it eventually reach, reaches like a peak and then it sort of implodes. Um, people start fighting. There's like sectarian conflict on message boards. You know, th these communities bubble and then they burst. So that that's going to always happen. It's just sort of human nature. People want to go to the cool party and the cool party stops being cool. Um, in 10 years ago, when that would happen, 
the 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 website that everyone was hanging out at would would burst and then it would sort of disappear. MySpace is a great example. Friendster is a great example. And for most of my adult life, I've lived with the idea that maybe something could become the next MySpace. It could disappear because it stops being cool. The problem is that that's not happening anymore. The platforms that were around 10 years ago are still around and they're even more powerful. I think it was actually healthy for our information ecosystem and for maybe our brains to have communities die out. I think Facebook lasting forever is terrifying. And I get that it's a business and you want um, to not have to, you know, make a new business <laughs> and you don't want people to lose their jobs. And I understand that. Sure. But at the same time, um, we've seen this with monopolies and with um, mega corporations before uh, they can last forever and ever. And then the people who are working there or using the products start to get hurt. I think the internet, was a lot more functional when it was more diverse in terms of what you could do. I always loved the joke where it's like, do you remember websites? Do you remember having websites? Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have websites anymore. Now we have four apps mm -hmm. and that's pretty much all we do. Um, and usually the apps are just screenshots of what's going on on the other apps. Very annoying. Um, I think the first step to fixing the issues we're in right now is smaller websites that are more accountable. Um, I think people would just be a lot happier in smaller communities. Um, that tends to be how it works in real life, too. Yeah. Uh, that is a really, really interesting thought and goes just straight against the grain of, of what we were talking about earlier, which is, um, you know, fewer companies uh, absorbing the attention of of every human on, uh, on the face of the planet. So I, I think that's, but I think that's true. And I think that notion of creative destruction seems to have sort of somehow gotten driven out of this particular tech economy, um, to the detriment of a lot of, a lot of outcomes. Um, do you, so I, I, this is a little bit newsy, but, uh, I, I did see that Jim Watkins, who's the owner of 8chan, uh, apparently the sole owner has been called to testify next week before the house Homeland security committee. Do you, have any expectations about what that hearing might produce? Um, I think it'll be a circus. <laughs> I think I think all of these congressional hearings have been closer to WWE than they have been anything particularly useful. I went to the Candace Owens one about white nationalism a couple months ago, and it was definitely entertaining, um, and it pr produced a couple of viral moments. But yeah. I felt kind of crazy sitting there because the questions that were being asked weren't particularly interesting or useful. Um, and I'm sort of worried actually that um, there's, I think there's this tendency with the congressional hearings and I understand why this happens where you have, you know, Republicans and Democrats and they sort of take opposite uh, uh, standings on what's going on. So they try to balance the scale and make it a got to hear both sides sort of thing. Doing that with someone like Jim Watkins is insanely dangerous. Yeah, he is. Uh, I don't think he can fit into the uh, Republican Democrat binary that we sort of insist on sticking with right now. He is an agent of pure chaos, and he. Um, although maybe you know maybe it'll just be super boring, and he won't really answer anything, and it'll be really uh, not useful. Um, but I'm sort of bracing myself.
well for a circus. Yeah, it would. <laughs> uh, my 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 expectation personally is that it will produce uh, some really terrific uh, moments that will then go super viral on all of the platforms that we've just been criticizing, and uh, we'll we'll just be more fodder for that uh, for that ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, uh, as cynical as that sounds. Uh, any any final words of advice uh, for? Policymakers, uh, journalists, your peers who cover these things—any anything that you think people should be doing, or anything that you would want news consumers to be thinking about as they're reading your coverage? I want to say that the internet is a good thing. It is an incredible thing, um, and all these conversations I think should be done uh, with the intention of making the internet even better and more fun and more exciting, and uh, and figure out you know, how to safely create more expression and more global connectivity. And the main um, point that I like to make is that I think when we are ourselves, the user in control of how you connect with people and not uh, a company that you can't uh, regulate or uh, you can't even uh, get any transparency from, that's when things get out of control. And so I, I hope that we look back on you know, this period of time in like five, 10 years, and we say, wow, I'm so glad we fixed all that because now we can have a lot more fun and we can share more memes and we can have a good time. And I, I hope that that's where all of this work is leading to, is uh, more memes, basically. More memes. <laughs> On that note, we will end. Ryan, uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You can read Ryan's coverage at buzzfeednews.com and follow him on Twitter where his username is at Broderick. If you would like to join the work of the Mayor's Council Against Hate, please visit cha.cay slash against hate and let us know. Thanks also to Will Davis and the staff at WUTC for their production assistance. This is The Scanner, a podcast about journalism, extremism, and what's happening in America. Thanks for listening and for speaking up.